Hello and welcome to Found. I'm your host, Daryl Etherington, TechCrunch Managing Editor. And with me is the heritage breed to my broiler. Jordan Crook, TechCrunch Deputy Jordan Editor. Yeah. Deputy Editor. The big boss. Don't forget it. Yeah. I mean, if we're doing titles, I'm going to throw mine in too. That's right. We just want to make sure people know where they're at. Yeah. And you're here with us on TechCrunch's premier podcast. (laughs) And it is all about the stories behind the startups. It's about founders and it's about what they did to get where they are today and where they're going next as well. We talk a lot about that too. I just wanted to bring up early so that you guys... Pay, pay close attention. Maybe you drift during the listen. I doubt it. You're probably wrapped throughout. Yeah, but of course. In case, we have big news. We have another live show. So we've done one live recording I've found so far. We have another one coming up, and it's Shivani Soroya from Tala, which is a digital platform on a mission to expand financial access to the underbanked in emerging markets. Lots of opportunity out there to serve underserved, previously underserved customers in digital banking. But Tala is at the cutting edge of that. So really excited to talk to Shivani. So that's going to happen on March 17th at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern time. If you come, you can ask your own questions. That's a cool thing. That's right. Like it's not just a conversation with the three of us. You're there involved. Join us on Hopin and then you you get to be there live asking your questions. Sometimes the questions people ask on those are great and we never would have thought of them even though, you know, me and Jordan it's are our job. Tremendous. We're literally paid to do that and we wouldn't have thought of them. Again, <laughs> slightly underachieving folks over here. Yeah. Yeah. But today on this episode, as I alluded to, we're talking to an expert in poultry. An expert I think in many things, but yeah. poultry especially. And it's Matt Wadiak from Cook's Venture. Cook's Venture is what it sounds like. It's it's both a venture from a cook and it is an adventure, a cook's adventure to find out about sustainable sourcing of poultry, to breed a more tasty chicken and to develop sustainable farming practices. He's bitten off a lot. It's a big, yeah, it's a big, it's called venture for a reason because it is big, big dreams. But it's very cool. Talk about ambitious. Yeah. Very cool. I love talking to him. Jordan, you brought him to the show. Thank you very much for I this say? find, for this sourcing. Yeah. You truly are amazing. I truly am a broiler. <laughs> Without further ado, let's get into it with Matt. Hi, Matt. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you on here. I think I'm so curious. I want to ask a question up front that I feel like I should wait. But first, (laughs) first, can you tell us a bit about Cook's Venture, your startup, and what it does? Absolutely. So Cook's Venture is the culmination of years and years and years of, first of all, being a chef and then working in ag. I started my career back in, dates me a little bit, but the early 90s in food and cooking. And then went through working in restaurants to culinary school to started Blue Apron as a COO and founder of Blue Apron. And then was searching really in my food career for a better chicken to serve to the millions of people in America and billions of people around the world who eat chicken every day. Mm -hmm. And what I learned in my quest to find better chicken for our company at Blue Apron and for others, was that little known and unbeknownst to me that there were only two genetics companies left in the world that control over 99% of American poultry genetics. And genetics means just basically a male and a female that mate and create a broiler that you buy in a a grocery store Mm -hmm. and that they sell to all of the integrators. So Tyson owns one of them. It's called Cobb. And then EW Group is a big German genetics company, and they're the global market share owned by one family office in Germany. And we didn't realize that. So I was out there futilely talking to all these different folks saying, hey, we want a better bird. We want like heirloom chicken and pasture-raised chicken and all this great stuff. And we didn't realize that what you buy in literally every single grocery store brand, whether it's labeled free range, organic, pasture-raised, whatever, was predominantly this single breed, the Cornish cross chicken from one of those two companies. So what Cook's Venture is, is it's the first company in over 50 years that started where we focused on poultry genetics, chicken for flavor and we breed for healthier chickens and you know all of the stuff that like to sum it up if you go out to the to the street and you say ask an average person what do you think about chicken they're probably like Mm -hmm. oh i eat a lot of chicken but i don't want to know 
where it comes from. I've heard it has like, you know, five heads or six legs or something. They're all those urban legends. So basically, although those urban legends are specifically true, it's pretty darn bad. And we think that people just deserve more transparency in the supply chain. So we cultivate and breed and grow better chickens. And then we actually process them. And then we sell them to grocery stores and retailers and consumers all over the country. And then in the future, we'll sell our breed all over the world so that everybody can enjoy healthier, better tasting chicken that doesn't have to create these sort of environmental and animal welfare problems. Nice. Yeah. So Matt, the first time that we talked, which was a while ago, we talked about the different kind of upstream and downstream models, right? On face value, Cook's Venture has this special breed of chicken that can eat more biodiverse feed, is more heat resistant, and has all of these traits that make it kind of a better option, let's say, just like blanket statement. But then you also talked about, like you said, selling chicken, selling the actual chickens themselves to other chicken farmers so that they can breed them and have their own business, as well as regenerative farming practices that you've set up at your own farm to other farmers who maybe want to make chicken feed, right? Mm -hmm. Can you just give us a status update on where you are with those other two? Obviously, the chicken stuff's going great, but like on the other sides of the spectrum, where are we at? Yeah, great question. So God, when when did we last talk? I'm trying to remember. Was it about a year ago, maybe-ish? A little longer? <sighs> yeah, something like that. It was when you got the last funding. Yeah. So it might have been Even a little more. July. So yeah. so basically since then, we have done some really cool stuff. So on our properties, this year we planted 21,000 hazelnut trees on all of our farms. And hazelnut trees are really meant, this is two parts of regenerative agriculture. There's the on-farm and there's the feed-related ag. So on-farm, we've planted all of these biodiverse systems. So when the chickens go outside, they fertilize the trees, and then we've cultivated and tested different annual direct drill seed crops. So we have a spring mix and a winter mix of seeds that will actually drill directly into the soil on the chicken farm. So the chickens will go out and they'll eat daikon radish, which will loosen the soil, which will provide nutrient absorption for the trees and the trees will grow. So we worked with Mark Shepard from RAD, which stands for Restorative Agricultural Development on that project. It was actually the largest silvo planting pasture program ever conducted with poultry. So that's really cool. And what we'll do year over year is we'll take cuttings from those trees and we'll cultivate ultimately the Arkansas hazelnut by, you know, it's a very large sample size of trees and some trees are going to grow really well. And there's genetic differentiation in trees, just like there are people and chickens and everything. And then we'll take those cuttings and that will be the sort of Arkansas cultivar for that, that will do well with poultry. We've done a bunch of other sort of biodiverse studies sort of on local land. And then in terms of the feed study, the upstream part of our supply chain, we have conducted three studies this year on poultry inputs, which are totally different and revolutionary. So I think last time we talked, we had selected down to a single stage monogastric feed, which is unique for our industry because the entire poultry industry relies on three, four, or five. Now it's up to five stages of feed. So which means a single flock that's only living like in a conventional bird, 42 days, will have a feed truck go back and forth four or five times with what's called pre-starter feed blend, which is one specific blend of, you know, corn and soy, then a starter blend, which is a different blend than a grower blend, which is a different blend and a finisher blend, which is a different blend of corn and soy. So first of all, from a transportation standpoint, that really sucks. Obviously that's like 400% too many trips. There should be one, you know? And then secondly, it's just corn and soy. So how do we get away from these systems? And the issue is that for over 70 years in America, We've selected Cornish cross chickens, or I should say genetics companies, not we, because we're not doing it. Right. I've selected Cornish cross chickens based on what crops are being subsidized and what's cheap and accessible. So that's been corn and soy with ammonium nitrate fertilizer and typical herbicidal inputs. So what we're doing that's different is we select all of our pedigree birds and have been doing for over a decade on one stage of feed, which means that the diet's the same for the whole bird's life. And then we're adding in... Right now, we're doing at the very last, this is actually cool that we're talking today. We're the very last day of a sorghum inclusion trial. And sorghum is a naturally regenerative crop and a proper crop rotation outside of the corn and soy system. Grows really well in Southern and Midwestern states as an alternative to corn and soy. And then, so we're doing an inclusion study with corn soy control versus 20% Milo. Milo is sorghum, same thing. And a 40% inclusion. And what we're finding with our breed is that 
our high inclusion of Milo when used as a cover crop or an alternative rotational crop actually for our birds, because we've selected them for that, are actually having similar FCR, if not better, from activity level. We've noticed higher activity in the birds. And this is a little bit more anecdotal, but if you pick it up and you just smell the feed and you touch it and you feel it, it's you can tell it's it smells sweeter, it's more biodiverse, it has a more attractive scent to it. And that's not a scientific factor, but it's right. novelly interesting because, yeah. you know, it's just like something different that the chicken really gets into and, and they're doing really well on it. And I will report back next time we talk on the final technical results of that, or I could probably share it with you even in the next few days on how that worked out. And then we did a really cool one this winter too. We did a red winter wheat cover crop where wheat is grown everywhere, obviously, but in the U.S., wheat that's grown as a cover crop under the last farm bill policy cover crops are incentivized to be grown for a tiny, tiny subsidy, but they're not saleable if you receive the subsidy. So there's a policy related issue with that where we need to change farm bill policy. And we're working sort of like at a high level with lobbyists and government folks to say, hey, if you're willing to grow a cover crop, at least let people sell it. But if they sell it, you need to keep the root systems intact. So we developed a system to grow red winter wheat, mow it. So all of the roots stay intact. Then Most wheat in America is desiccated, meaning it's sprayed with glyphosate, herbicide, Roundup to dry it. We don't do that. So we're sending it to a drying facility to get it dry so you can actually mill it. And then from there, we have milled it and we have put it in our feed. And we've also seen similar results to what we're seeing in sorghum in that it's a really positive nutritional advantage to our birds. And when trialed against Cornish cross chickens, our gut health, uh, because we select for gut health specifically, is producing a better result in the animal meat and the activity and the health of the animal. So we've seen better activity, lower mortality, better FCRs in these small grain crops. And the small grain crops are really what keep us from growing organic systems in America. If you actually look at use of land in America, even though you can buy Michelob Ultra Prickly Pear Lime, that's USDA certified organic, the truth is, is that over 99% of land in the US is still not organic and that there are not really corn and soy organic systems, mostly because there aren't really good outputs for small grain crops like the ones we're talking about just now. So by doing these tests, we can reselect our pedigree birds which are the birds that come five generations before the broiler. And you can select the four to 5% that do even better on those crops. And over time, you can build big global markets for alternative and local grains and create circular economies around that feedstock. So in year two, we've got three really successful feed trials under our belt, have 21,000 trees planted, have biodiverse annuals that we're planting in conjunction with the perennials, And we're really making a dent. And we actually have a measurement on sequestered carbon this year. It's in the hundreds of tons just in the work that we're doing in these trials. They were hoping to fully implement system-wide all of our learnings from this year towards the end of 22 in the harvest and 23 coming up. Right. So, Matt, I need to, I'm coming to this kind of like, I would imagine like a lot of our listeners are coming to this where like, actually, that's not fair. I have like a better understanding of agriculture probably because my grandfather was actually a a beef farmer. Mm -hmm. But like you just said so many things that are all very fundamental in terms of big changes to systems that people don't even know exist. Yeah. Like because the one thing that people probably don't even realize is a lot of the impact of livestock farming is because of everything you have to farm to supply them, which is typically, you know, some kind of grain or hay or whatever, but like people don't realize a lot of that is like now it's just one thing and they just do it over and over again, like you said, for subsidy. And that's terrible for the land. It's terrible for a long-term use of the land. And it means that you have that huge amounts of land live fallow because they're not productive because you haven't switched things out or been diverse about the types of crops you grow there, right? And like, I think if people took this step-by-step and were like listening to what you're saying, they would be like, hold on, hold on. They would just be like, I need to take a breath. What are you talking Because it's very dramatic, the impact it has all the way down the stack, especially for something like chicken, right? Because I know tons of people who are like, I'm vegetarian most of the time, but like, I'll eat chicken. Chicken is the one thing that everyone's like, I'll eat chicken though, right? right? I mean, it's like this staple. It's like a potato. Right. right? It's just like this thing. But part of it is because people assume the impact is less than... Uh, a, cow. a cow or, or a something pig. like that, right? And chickens Which, like, are dumber than pigs, right? Or at least we think of them that way. I mean, I think right. that they fairly are. Right, it's okay because it's not as yeah. smart as babe or whatever, I'm not or being, whatever, like, right? rude to 
chickens. <laughs> the poor they chickens. Are I, they are going to unionize against you. <laughs> Bring um, it. Yeah, uh, there's a lot of them. <laughs> They've got the numbers. But Daryl's right. Everything that you you just explained it in a way where you are obviously in it every day, mm-hmm. right? So you have all of the, these pieces of information that you've been thinking about for years and years and years. So I think for the average listener. They're like, chicken is in such huge supply and like it can't be. It kind of just like slips the mind mm, if, right. if, or they're on the other side and they're like, oh, I know the basics that because we have so much livestock in our diet, I know that that means that it contributes to climate change and some of the bad stuff, but maybe haven't gone so far as regenerative farming and kind of biodiversity in our land, or maybe they have, but even so... It's easy to get lost. And I think how I'm leading into this question might be a little bit long-winded, but you have a very big project on your hands, right? Like I always loved the fact that it's called Cook's Venture because venture is like kind of symbolic of all of this different stuff that's happening. Because we have, we're changing just the chicken in general that we're trying to eat. We're changing the way we can sell that. I think one of the things that stood out to me most early on was that Cook's Venture chickens are more heat resistant so that in a place like sub-Saharan Africa, someone could start a chicken farm, mm. theoretically. Or, right? or, so, or soon the U.S. Right? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, we're on our way. And then, you know, the regenerative farming practices. And I'm just curious, as you've gone and raised funding, as you've hired and stuff like that, I'm always really interested in founders who have this giant idea. And then there has to be like a 45 step or 450 step or <laughs> 4,500 step plan to get from nothing to this very, very big idea. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just curious how you have communicated with the people around you that you work with all the time. And how you manage to prioritize what comes next, right? Like you're doing all these studies. For me, like the simpleton, I would think go and develop a prototype or whatever of regenerative farming and start selling it to farmers, right? Like why isn't that what you're doing? But you obviously understand the steps better than I do. So like, how do you think about that? It's a really good question. Starting with square one bullet points that I think that are important that would help to kind of like bring it down to the basics of agriculture. And then what do we focus on to provide that to the masses? And how do you convey that to a community of eaters and investors to clarify? And Mm -hmm. my path to getting here and our path to getting here our cook's venture, if you will. Thank you for that compliment. Yeah, I was going to ask you about it too. Er- everybody like, thinks it it's a VC like, thing. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like placeholder, like name yeah. to come later. You're a cook and you have a venture. <laughs> but yeah, no, it, it actually came out, its name came out of when I was a young cook working at uh, Lovetto in 1999. I would go over to Italy with my fellow cooks and it was our venture to buy truffles mm, and stuff and bring them back. Nice. And we're all working for 10 bucks an hour. And the name kind of came from the idea that we want to go on these continuous ventures and that as cooks, you should never just accept what you have in the food system. It's your responsibility right. to try to change the food system for the better. And, and I'm, I still consider myself a cook. This is my part of my culinary responsibility to do something better for anthropology and for people and for farmland. And if you look at the breakout of farmland, I guess my first bullet point is that, first of all, corn is our biggest crop in America. Mm-hmm. You know, we have more corn production than any other country in the world. And first off, more than half of it now is going to ethanol. And ethanol is energy negative, And we subsidize that with tax dollars. So the company line that big companies have said for many years, and that I think a lot of people out there who are listeners might have heard, is we've got to feed a growing population by 2050. Right. I'm sure everybody's heard that. Like, oh, the population's doubling. Well, we're already throwing away half of our corn and putting it in our gas tanks. So if you just stop doing that, problem solved. (laughs) (laughs) You know, number two, the second biggest consumer of corn, if we just look at corn, is cattle. Hmm. And the feed conversion ratio of cattle versus animals with one stomach, monogastric animals like pigs or chickens, because cattle ferment in their rumen and they digest food, and then they process it and they turn it into bone and muscle. They don't do it very efficiently and we feed them a lot of corn. Right. So cattle are unique though in their ability to digest grass where chickens and pigs cannot turn grass into energy. Cattle have that fermentation step. So putting more cattle on grasslands and eating grass-fed beef is really important for the reduction of petrochemicals and for the environment. It's not that cattle are bad, in terms of like this environmental thing. And I think there's this like world where they think, oh my God, like cows are ruining the environment. Mm. 
the truth is, is that it's the corn that the cattle are eating right. that are ruining the environment, not the cattle themselves. Which is again the next propped big, up by the sort of tariffs and like the the, the system. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And the next biggest cohort of animals that eat grain is chicken. And those and chicken do have to eat grain. So a lot of folks email us on a weekly basis and they're like, "Hey, are your chickens pasture raised? Do they eat just grass?" And I'm like, "No." Would you eat just salad? You die if you, if you only ate like lettuce. Yeah. So like, it's the same thing for these animals. And I think just to bring it to basics, you can't feed children just grass. They won't live and right. chickens won't live if you feed them just grass. So we have to harvest grain and to create grain that creates healthy soil without using a bunch of fertilizers and pesticides, you have to grow different crop rotations. You can't just say, I'm only going to grow corn. I'm only going to grow soy because those are subsidized. Different grains have subtractions from soil. So one grain might take nitrogen out, Mm -hmm. whereas uh, one legume might put nitrogen in. The sort of minimum accepted standard of a healthy crop rotation is like five to seven different kinds of crops that you're rotating through annually. And the biggest problem with American agriculture, when you look at that's over 90% of use of farmland in America, by the way, just growing row crops. Mm. That's the real big impact potential. Only 3% is all of the fruits and vegetables. So you might go to your local grocery store and go to the organic section and say, oh, look, organic lettuce, organic carrots, organic this, organic that. All of that that's produced domestically and exported only makes up 3% of American agriculture. So when we're looking at changing climate, changing soil, changing land, it's row crops and it's growing those crops in different cycles. And you might say, okay, great. Why don't you just do that and sell it to a farmer? The reason is two parts. Number one, we have a national and a global infrastructure. If you go to a feed mill that mills feed for animals in America, almost any feed mill, they have two bins, a bin for corn and a bin for soy. So they don't have five or seven. And we just said that it takes five to seven to create a regenerative mix. And they don't have the mixing technology in place to do that. But here's what we do have that's good news. We have tractors, we have transportation, we have rail cars, we have barges. And the way that we make this kind of food accessible to everyday folks around the world is you put in a few more feed bins, you upgrade milling by a little bit in each mill, which is not crazy expensive considering how much we dump into just subsidies every year. Mm -hmm. And then you create animals that can digest that feed. And ultimately the problem is we've cultivated animals over the last 50 years, 70 years that can't eat the good stuff that is regenerative. So now we have to start with the animal that can consume that stuff and then people will invest in the infrastructure. So that's how we create the change. And then there's one last thing that, that I'll add to it is you need variable scale. If you don't have enough scale, if you don't have a large plant, if you have chickens that are just selling for $40 at a local market, that's great if people want to buy that, but most people can't afford that mm-hmm. kind of food. So selling food to every, who could afford it to every American, it might not be the 79 cent chicken, but for a couple extra bucks, you can feed your family something that supports that system and is better if the R&D, if the scale, if the investment is made in those kinds of ways. But variable efficiency and all supply chain is super critical. So we have to do these things in a big way to make them work. Great. Since you're a found listener, I'm going to bet you're also pretty interested in startups and technology. Great news. We're going to give you an offer for 25% off a subscription to TechCrunch+. TC Plus is our premium product, and what you get there are deep dive interviews with some of the best startup founders and investors in the industry. You get surveys of different investors in different areas of expertise and geographies. You get market maps of opportunities in new and emerging industries, and you get deep dive looks at some of the hottest startups out there. You can subscribe to TechCrunch Plus at TechCrunchPlus.com. That's probably the easiest way to get there. Or if you're already on TechCrunch, just follow the links for TechCrunch Plus and you'll get a prompt to subscribe. Once you're there, just enter the code, which is found, the name of this podcast, during checkout, and you'll get 25% off a one-year TechCrunch Plus subscription. I wonder, what is the linchpin then, or what is the key element in the system that you spend most of your time trying to generate in such a way that the rest falls into place? I know, like if I hit your site as a consumer, it's very much like flavor forward, and it definitely has the benefits, but sketched in the kind of way that the average consumer can understand, as opposed to like, look, here's everything that's wrong with the current factory farming system. Like you can get there. (laughs) Doom and gloom. Right. Right. To me, that indicates that's where you need customer demand to drive everything else in the flywheel, but maybe I'm mistaken. What's the most important part of the flywheel, I guess, for you to get everything kind of to that scale? So 
Bill Nyman is a good friend and, and I consider him to be like a mentor in agriculture. Those of you who listening don't know Bill Nyman, he was considered to be like the Steve Jobs of meat. He's the grandfather of pasture raised, no antibiotics, better quality food. Purdue now owns Nyman Ranch, his legacy company, but he's still a farmer in Bellinas. Him and his wife, Nicolette, have a thousand acres and they grow cattle. And we've been working together. We've been friends for over 20 years, we've been working together for over 10. He gave me some very, very sage advice many years ago said, you can have pasture-raised, you can have organic, you can have regenerative, you can have this name breed, that name breed, and all the bells and whistles that you want on a package. But if it doesn't taste good, people will never buy it again. And there are a lot of heritage chickens. There's a lot of heritage pigs, a lot of heritage cattle that are fun. And they're really cool to look at. And they're very beautiful in terms of like, you know, genetic specimens. But they don't taste good. And <laughs> if we're selling people tough chicken, that's like, oh my God, like I have to chew through this. Yeah. You know, Endure sure. You might be saving way. the planet, but <laughs> yeah, but it's, it doesn't do any, any good. So the, the main thing that we have to focus on is our food has to be delicious. And ultimately that's part of the cooks in the cooks venture is that when we think about anthropology, when we think about we're defining our food system today, that 20 years from now, we're going to look back and think about our Thanksgivings and holidays and this and that and the other. And those are like gatherings with family and friends around the table, you think about how that food tasted. You think about, Mm -hmm. you know, that food memory, the people you're with, the conversation you're having, the wine you're drinking. Food needs to be delicious. And cultivating food historically wasn't always around just production, production, production. There was an element of taste associated with it. And I think all we're trying to do simply is say, okay, like, just because it's chicken, it doesn't have to taste like crap. Like you don't have to accept a rubbery, nasty chicken that is growing so fast that you can taste that it's not healthy. We're trying to bring those things of efficiency and flavor and also scalability into one world. You know, Americans can be the leaders in that. Like, why not? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great point. Cause like chicken, if I think about chicken, even just convincing people that chicken can have a flavor that is in itself desirable is like a huge win. Right. So from that perspective, you have an advantage. Whereas you're not like, you know, we, we want you to have the best beef. Like if I think of beef, even if I think of like a off cut of whatever, I'm like, oh, it has a very distinctive flavor that I can remember. Right. <laughs> Whereas chicken now is, is your like, mouth water. I'm so hot. I'm going to get the smoke. <laughs> like, but like chicken now, yeah. I'm like, okay, well, I gotta, I gotta brine it overnight to get anything out of it, right? No, you only have to brine it for like 15 minutes. (laughs) But if I'm just, my point is like, if I just cook chicken, I'm not like, oh, the flavor. I'm like, what is this, right? (laughs) You're not doing it right. It's Well, it's true. And and that has, there's like some really technical reasons for that. And I'll spare you some of that. But like the way that muscles have been selected to grow with modern genetics in birds is really the issue. And there's no flavor. Chickens are sort of naturally filled with water on the cellular level. Mm which is why they gain weight so quickly. So when you eat like a modern cross of Cornish cross chicken from one of those big companies, you're really just eating the water that they're drinking in their chicken house on the water line. (laughs) I don't mean to gross you out, but that's why it doesn't taste like anything. It's just you're eating water. It has lower protein and lower, all the stuff that makes up flavor is like good, healthy protein in the animal Mm -hmm. and the ability to caramelize that and have a higher nutritional density to the food. So when you cultivate for that, for muscle structure, more dry, we call it dry matter yield, you can have a healthier animal and a healthier animal ultimately is a more flavorful bird. You look at duck, Mm -hmm, you know, the sort of like the extreme of fowl and like other kind of sort of avians, they have flavor to them and poultry chicken can have flavor too when it's grown in the right way. Except turkey. But so can we go back to the linchpin question? Because- Mm -hmm. Daryl was focused in on growing customer demand, right? Which obviously is an important one. From everything we've talked about, it seems like policy would be a really big piece Mm. of everything, right? So like how much of your time and energy do you dedicate to educating people on how they should be voting on local elections and talking to policymakers and doing studies that can then be sent to those policymakers? How do you think about that side of it and how much of your energy do you push into that? We put a good amount of work into it and it's hard because average politician has just as much education on any kind of specific subject matter as any other average person. So even folks who are writing the farm bill, in fact, I'd say it's almost harder with politicians because they're the ones who are targeted by most ag companies like NCC, National uh, Chicken Council. When you hear the words National Chicken Council, what does that sound like to you? 
Well, it's, it's really funny in my mind, actually. It's yeah, a, just imagining a bunch of chickens standing around with gavels. If it's a if it's a lobby it's, group, it's politicians like I dressed up like chickens. No, yeah. <laughs> but like it sounds like one of those things where it's like, oh, this is a neutral organization in charge of the standards of this thing, but it's probably actually a lobby yeah. group or whatever, right? Like that's the yeah. way those usually were. Daryl, you hit the nail on the head. Mm-hmm. It sounds like an official organization, like the United States Department of Agriculture, the National Chicken Council. It's a lobby group who's presidents and CEOs have been operating executives at major chicken companies for the last 50 years. Right. They're going to, and, and by the way, they're going to come after me now that I said that. Yeah. Um, I'm not even I was joking. Wondering. Yeah, I, know, like I, shouldn't no. be, I shouldn't say stuff like that. I'm laughing nervously because uh, they have yeah. a lot of power. Like these big laws. <laughs> yeah. Just, Hey, just watch my, you can, you guys can see me from, yeah, we can from see. Yeah, just we'll make sure nobody know. creeps up with a, <laughs> When like the a chicken SWAT knife team comes in. Yeah. yeah. But the problem is, is they spend billions of dollars on, it's all published numbers, billions of dollars on lobbying to advocate for their companies. Mm-hmm. And look, they have their policy groups. We have our policy groups and we have sort of like a total anti-agenda to, to that kind of agriculture. Right. Like somebody from the NCC recently said to an article that woody breast syndrome and white striping disease, which are prevalent in about 99% of chicken are both healthy signs of growth. <laughs> Healthy signs of growth when, in fact, any veterinary scientist would tell you they're muscular myopathies. Now, here's what I have to ask you. If you went to your doctor and they said, you have a muscular myopathy, but your growth is great. What would you What would you think about I think that? If they said I had really any concerning. kind of syndrome, any <laughs> syndrome or myopathy, expectation or would it be yeah, like uh, yeah, yeah like that's not good. It's very healthy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'd be like, so, and what does that mean, doctor? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's the kind of stuff that it's like. Okay, suppress information, avoid the problem, keep doing what you're doing. We've got to feed America. We've got to feed the world. And those are like the toe in the line. Like, oh, like we don't have to change. Everything's fine. It's mm. good. These companies are looking out for your best interest. Really, really trust us. But like we've learned a long time ago that these groups that are financially involved in companies don't have checks and balances, that there really is no independence. And there's not a lot of folks looking into it. And on a congressional level, they have targeted the right senators and Congress people to create influence. And I'd say there are a few people who really do know what they're talking about. Like if you listen to Cory Booker, mm-hmm. he's pretty smart on his ag stuff. And he'll say, hey, we're not affecting the world. We're infecting the world with US ag policy. And the truth is ultimately all of this work that we're doing to create these you know, agendas that are detrimental to soil health, it's just, it's just going to bite us back in the ass right. later. So 20 years from now, when we've depleted soil, when the animals can no longer grow because there's just no heat tolerance or there you get like an H1N1 avian influenza that wipes out half the birds in America, we're playing with fire. And then people will say, oh, we should have taken care of this way back when, and now is way back when. Right. So we need to be considerate of that. And I just would encourage anybody out there, it's not that hard. If you just literally Google broiler chicken and go to the Wikipedia site for chicken, it is disturbing the stuff that you'll read. Yes. And it's like I think such that's why most resource. people don't do it, but they should do yeah. it, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like they know what they're going to find or just like assume that what you think you're going to find is what you're going to find and then make changes accordingly, right? If you find it that unpleasant. Yeah. But. Well, it feels like the whole system too. It's not just that it's got this momentum in the direction you're talking about. Oh, we got to feed the world. Like, don't worry. We've got a bigger problem at stake. Let's just keep feeding them chicken. But there are like yeah. minute details that also seem stacked against you. Something as simple as the, I mean, I know that the president doesn't necessarily like affect agricultural policy quite as much as like the local policymakers and, and state regulations and stuff. But like even the fact that the Iowa caucuses come first has an effect, it feels like, because that's the ethanol production, right? Yeah. So right from the get go at a new big kind of swing, the election people are paying the most attention to, it's like. Don't worry, we're going to keep going with ethanol because that's kind of what's necessary to get to step two and step three and step four of the election process. Hmm. Where, 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 where's, our, where's our Secretary of Agriculture from again? Hmm. I don't even know who our Secretary of Agriculture is. <laughs> uh, Tom Vilsack, he was, the, he, was the, he was the governor of Iowa. Yeah. yeah. So there you go. There you go. Yeah. So it's all stacked in this terrible way. And yeah. I just like don't know how anybody. Well, dismantles it. I mean, not that we want to dismantle the whole system. Maybe we do. I don't know. But the, well, you do well, it like slowly, right? Because you just want to start yeah. decoupling parts and saying like, this isn't necessary. Because you see how it happened. And it's not even like a thing where you don't point to it and go like, oh, look at this. It was like a big conspiracy with intent all along. It was like, okay, like right. one time they were trying to solve a problem and then you get entrenched interests and they're like, you know, we've been doing it this way and it's been working pretty well. Why don't we just continue doing it that way with a multiplier? 
effect, right? And it's like, sure, you see how you get to the bad end state, right? You know, and you just have to go in there and get people off of it, which is not just, it's incredibly like hard to do. the same way it right? happens. It's like the same way it's formed yeah. is essentially what you're saying is how it's dismantled, which is like one little kind of move at a time. Yeah, well, it was it was formed from the Cold War and post-World War II from petrochemicals. And that's how we started growing all this stuff. And building a strong grain and export economy is what made us a financially superior country to Russia at that time. Right. We continued to use those things and big companies integrated and became involved in grain animals and sales of animals. And that's how the beast was built. Right now that we have a broader understanding and more science in understanding how crops can and maybe should be grown, we can change those systems. And I think times have changed in that there weren't too many private equity companies in 1955. Mm -hmm. So if you're looking at food today, the way that we create a paradigm shift is through two things, understanding consumer demand, but consumer demand has to be driven by companies that can scale have access to VC and PE capital, yep. and hopefully in the future, some government help for legitimate companies, whether it's a match from the USDA to invest in alternative ag or some kind of like policy advantages that at least put us on an equal playing field of folks who are being subsidized to grow ethanol crops that you're paying for with your tax dollars every day. That's the footing that's changed is I talked to, I won't say who, but major person at government about five years ago. I don't want to get myself in too much trouble. And CC already coming. No, no, no. Uh, Pre-Trump. Um, but, but, you know, I, I said, Hey, you know, while you were in the administration, why didn't you do more about regenerative ag? And the answer was, we haven't seen scalable models that represent that we can create regenerative change and also feed a lot of people right. in a cost-effective way. I said, well, we're already not doing that today. So yeah. first of all, that's problem number one. But number two is, okay, fine. Let's put our money where our mouth is. And now you see PEs and, and VCs stepping up and investing in systems like Cook's Venture that we have access to capital. We can go out and we can show that we can be a successful company in scale and feed a lot of people. And once you start doing that, we all know it's a bandwagon and everybody jumps yeah. on and more money goes into that. It's it's like solar. Nobody was investing in solar 40 years ago, but now everybody's investing in solar. So ag change, ag tech, soil change, crop development, animal cultivation, those things are all sort of at the tip of the spear at the moment. Yeah. We had a previous guest, Jordan, I can't remember who specifically, but... I mean, you've given me no context. Yes. So far. But it was about, it was about, there was the, a person uh, on the show. Yeah. That, yeah. <laughs> once. <laughs> okay. It was about the, meat, the lab grown meat, lab grown meat. Mm. But uh, they were having conversations with, oh, I remember with her. Tyson and, you know, everybody. And it was because they, those people are not, if you do what Matt's saying, like if you come to them and say, like, look, we can do this at scale and it works very well and it's sustainable and profitable, they're happy to have that conversation, especially if you're also saying, and consumers, want this too, right? They're not precious about, oh no, well, we want to keep doing it our stupid dumb way, even if it's bad. They want to defend their stupid dumb way as long as they can, because it's cheaper to do that. But then once mm -hmm. you give them a better way and prove that it's profitable and also hit with consumers, they'll open the door, right? So I think that's kind of what you're getting at. Whereas before you couldn't even do that because there was no way to yeah. even get to one Without the PE right. backing, because you were just like, That's right. I like this idea. And, and people were like, shut up, hippie. And then that was yeah. it. Right? Like, <laughs> yeah. Well, crunch your granola. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you, it, that's, that's, that's exactly right. It's been like that in ag for a long time, and you need a model that works. And I guess it's not like we had access to that kind of capital when we started the company either. You know, I started it. Because I personally bought the company and then we had to raise money, but yeah. we had to like, I, I had to personally take risk to do that because I saw the problem. It was really obvious, but you know, it can be painful sometimes to have those conversations, but this is, I think a good lesson is any business, whether it's an ag or tech business or SaaS business or whatever, it really doesn't matter if your idea is really good and you go out and you sell investors on day one on it, your idea is probably not that unique. You know what I mean? Right, like right, right. you should really have to go out if, if you're, if you're doing something different and, and convince somebody because otherwise it's been done and yeah, you're not, you're not the first point of entry. Yeah. yeah. That's just how the investment community has worked forever. I mean, people like to see successful historical models to know that they'll get a return on it. You can't, so, you can't blame investors for that either, you know? No. Well, no. kind of. I like to. But, so, <laughs> you blame them for everything. <laughs> I do. They're the problem. Hopefully, I never start a company. So <laughs> That might get we, you somewhere, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Given we're almost out of time, can I just ask one kind of forward-looking statement-based question? Yeah. Which is like, 
You said the cows themselves aren't bad. And I agree. I like Mm -hmm. the cows. And we know pigs are smart. So how, if any, of your energy or mental energy is being spent on like, this could feasibly be done with things other than chicken, other livestock, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's not, Mm -hmm. it wouldn't be impossible to do. Is that something that's, if we linchpinned it all and we got everything we needed and Cook's Venture was the top chicken in the world, right? Like, would we see you start on cows or pigs or what? So when we developed the feed system for poultry, the reason why we started with poultry is because poultry is the most eaten food in the world mm-hmm. or eaten meat in the world now and, and America. It was the biggest problem and it consumes the most corn. But if we get that mixed down, actually just naturally pigs could digest more stuff than chickens because they haven't been so selectively bred mm. for so many years. But getting that rotation down and putting the infrastructure in place for poultry in terms of being a big business unit, meaning that we have X number of houses and so many millions of pounds of feed that we're going through per week, that could be used for two other really big industries. The pork industry is the first one. So it'd be like slightly different nutritionally, but they could actually be complementarily because pigs can eat some things that chickens don't and vice versa. Chicken is a good start. And then the other one is that the most unregulated wild, wild west globally is aquaculture. Yeah, and there's like all kinds of that. shit going into fish feed that people don't even want to know about. Right. You could create a regenerative fish feed. That would be really complimentary too. So when you build the system, these mills can be utilized for those other animal species as well. And now you grow land that is healthy, that's feeding better animals, and you select those animals for those feed types over time. So yeah, that's, that's kind of the long-term goal. I don't know that we'll be involved in those animals ourselves, but the contributions in poultry will be inherently beneficial to those other species. That's great. I do also want to make sure we mention that by the time this airs, you'll have announced an additional $50 million in funding. So yes. that's very exciting. With Pius, is that how you pronounce the... Pius, yes. They are a really interesting IP-backed facility. And we are the first ag tech venture that they've ever funded or that has ever really been funded through this kind of debt solution. Hmm. It's basically they do, they're really great. They have insurers that carry them and they have a full suite of IP experts and they come in and they say, okay, are you just a company or do you really have intellectual property that's valuable that we feel like is lendable? It's created, we were talking about access to capital. It's created access to capital to entrepreneurs that traditionally might have dilutive capital with venture capital and don't yet have access to like big banks to create really great solutions for funding. So we're super excited to be the first ag tech venture that has been vetted and approved through one of those kinds of lending opportunities. And yeah, 50 million bucks is a good start to grow some healthy animals. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, we're big into the alternative funding models now on TC. We're trying to highlight more of them. So it's cool to hear about that one. And it does sound like it's a sweet spot, like you said, between kind of like venture and then like traditional bank debt lending or whatever. But if you yeah. have something good, you got to have something good. And it sounds like you guys. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of semiconductors and chips and things yeah, like that yeah. out there. But to see that some of the interest has shifted into agriculture and ag tech and genetics and research as like the next kind of growing consideration, I think is socially in the right direction. Yes. So. Yeah, that's excellent that that kind of interest is there. It's just like a sign that things are moving in the right direction. All right. Well, there's thanks so, very much, Matt. Yeah. We're out of time, but. It's been great talking to you. Did you have, do you want to plug anything else or you got any final thoughts for our <laughs> listeners here? <laughs> Free plugs. Yeah. My biggest plug is when you go to the grocery store, everybody knows Wagyu, everybody knows certified Angus, everybody knows, you know, kind of like these breeds of animals. Next time you go to the store, just ask your grocer, what kind of breed of chicken is this? And see what they, what they say with <laughs> like face. the look on their blank face. <laughs> And, but if people yeah, start to do that, edible. you know, the yeah, exactly. Understaffed, understocked grocer. Go ask yeah. them about your yeah. chicken breed. Just, just pester them all. <laughs> but, but it, that, I think that's important. I'd say second plug, if I have one is, yeah, go to cooksventure.com. Check us out and read about it and check out our YouTube video on the tr- the 21,000 tree planting. Maybe you guys will even be really nice and put a link in your podcast to it. That'd be cool. The hazelnut trees, right? That's what you're talking about? The hazelnut trees, yeah. yeah. That was a huge project. It took us, it was like 70 people. It took us almost a month to do it, all joining together from all parts of the country. And it was just a really cool project. And by the end of the video, it's kind of a tearjerker. It makes you feel good about what we can do if we put our hearts and minds together. Nice. All right. Will do. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks, y'all. Yeah. Take care. 
All right, Jordan, I now am chicken expert, just like Matt. You are also chicken expert. We can now put this after our names, like as if it's a professional designation. Yeah, you didn't use a, like an article. You are chicken expert, like not <laughs> a chicken expert. Just yeah, no, because it's a formal title. Yeah, it's of a course, formal yeah, capital C, capital yeah. E. Yeah, no, I do. So like I, we've talked about a couple of times, I wrote about books several times. And it's one of those startups that I think about frequently. And I think it has to do with, I always think it's so ambitious, but exciting when a company can lay out like a fully vertically integrated plan flip a coin on whether or not cooks will ever get all of this sorted out. They've got a solid system set up with just the chickens themselves. They've bred these chickens, took them 12 years to figure out this specific genetic breed of chicken that is more biodiverse, that has a stronger gut, that can eat more efficiently, right? Well, yeah, various things and not get kind of a tummy ache. I guess with chickens, it is probably... A tummy ache that results in death. I don't really know that much about, but it sounds like... Wait, chicken expert, you do know. this. Okay, I do know. I do know. So I'll just say it authoritatively. The standard chickens that you buy in grocery stores can only eat essentially cornmeal. Corn and soy. And not only that, but they eat four... I mean, we've gone over this, but they eat four different blends of corn and soy across their life. They start with like a pre-starter and then a starter and then a feed and then a This was mind-boggling to me. I loved... Him explaining all this, and I was just like, "Because you have no idea, why like, would you?" Yeah. I don't like. No. I think the the average person, they're like folks who are more progressive, maybe, and like really care about what goes in their body, and they're willing to watch the documentary and read the books and like do the investigation. Yeah. But that's not me. That's not me. My body is a trash receptacle. I exactly. Don't care what goes I want to taste yummy food. That's where I'm at. Like I, <laughs> I don't even care about it. that. Just throw whatever trash in whatever there. Whatever gets the old it going. Yeah. <laughs> But like, it's wild to me. And these cooks, chickens, cooks, chickens, that's tough. These cooks, chickens, I'm going to keep trying to say it, will be able to eat a much more diverse diet and they only need one type of feed for their whole life. And that's a, that in and of itself is a big deal, right? They taste better. Yeah. They're processed there. We've got a good little system going, but then the feed itself can be used to prop up regenerative agriculture and grow it. And then you can see how that could then propagate the sale of these chickens or the licensing of this genetic breed of chicken to other places where, again, their resilience, both in their gut and just their physiology, allows different foods to be grown and based on the geography. So it's just a huge, huge, huge undertaking. Mm-hmm. I love that. I, that. I don't give a shit about chickens and I like care mildly about agriculture just because I don't want the world to explode. But yet I care a lot about this. And I think that that's interesting. That's like a weird feeling. Yeah. I think that's probably like if I'm putting on my investor cap, like I think that's his strongest attribute is that he's able to make you care deeply about this thing that five seconds ago you didn't even know anything about at all. Right. And teach it pretty well too. I mean, this guy came from Blue Apron. He was a co-founder. He's a cook. He got in the weeds on it, figured it all out. And it's hard, actually. I mean, as someone who has written about cooks, it's hard. I'm, but my job is to be able to relay information. And it's difficult to get it all down in the right order right. with the right structure to simplify things, but explain enough in the details. It's a hard thing to do. And I mean, obviously, Matt has more practice than I do in telling the cook's venture story, but it's a big one to tell. And he does it well, too. So I'm, I'm a fan. Yeah, big time. So th- for me, this was a weird one for... Looking at as from like the perspective of a VC backed company, because it seems very it seems very challenging to scale and to scale in the kind of way that a VC would be looking for. But on the other hand, it's the perfect business for venture from like a traditional sense because it's like such a big swing and it wouldn't be able to exist otherwise, which we talked about a bit, right? Yeah. Without that capital from that specific source where they're like, have a high tolerance for risk, there's no chance that he would be able to get the amount of funding he needs to even plant the seed and get this started, right? So totally. I love that it's one of those types of businesses and doesn't look like what we've come to know is like VC Backable, which is basically... Software. Yeah, software tech with yeah. like high virality yeah this is this is really cool and i i'm glad to see that investors are embracing this kind of thing and there are still people willing to put money in this kind of thing and i want to see more and more of that right 
I want. I wish we could split a box so you can get of chicken. Yeah. So the cooks they sell through like several grocers and retailers, and I think that list is growing where you could just get like a chicken or chicken breasts or whatever. But like if they don't service your area or you don't have one of their grocery store partners on board, you buy it from their website, and it's like right. get eight cuts of something or whatever, which is a lot. But I do, I've yet to taste a Cook's Venture chicken. Like I might even just do a review. What do you think? I think you should do it. I think you should do it. I think it's, I don't know if they do Canada yet, so I might be left out, but. Um, Maybe I could ship you some. Yeah. Or for our upcoming event, this is how we work in the event plug. We have, well, yeah, we could do it on Maggie, our producer, suggests Twitter spaces. We could do that live there. That would be fun. Yeah. Or we could do it at early stage. Where we'll be in person. That would be fun. Which is coming up. I could yeah. get down with that. I don't know where I would have yeah. the chicken scent, but I could figure just have that it out. Sent to the hotel, or They're to like, the uh, <laughs> and I cook it on what exactly? <laughs> have it sent to the pier, <laughs> like in the Embarcadero, like just a generic public address. Send this chicken here. Just leave it there. I've worked we'll really <laughs> hard though on my like ability to properly roast chicken breast. I have worked tirelessly on it because I think most people make chicken that's like dry and gross and I'm pretty good at it so you throw in rock solid chicken who knows could be are the you best. saying that you could become I, the best I could be the chicken best chef chicken breast roaster <laughs> all right it's gauntlet thrown I guess another clean episode we'll... <laughs> good, as good a place as any to end uh, this week's episode Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll be back, and we'll find a new way that Jordan can express her, her superiority, her mastery yeah. over skills. I mean, chow me, rate and review, and tell me what you're doing with your chicken. I'd love to see it. Exactly. In the podcast Put reviews. your recipe in the review. That would be great. I could use some more recipes too. Mm-hmm. And yeah, leave us five stars. Thanks. Found is hosted by myself, TechCrunch news editor Daryl Etherington, and TechCrunch managing editor Jordan Crook. Yashad Kulkarni is our executive producer. We are produced by Maggie Stamets and edited by Kel Keller. TechCrunch's audio products are managed by Henry Pickovit. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and on Twitter at twitter.com slash found. You can also email us at found at techcrunch.com, and you can call us and leave a voicemail at 510-936-1618. Also, we'd love if you could spare a few minutes to fill out our listener survey at bit.ly slash foundlistenersurvey. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week.